Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Maureen Conway, Vice President at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program. It's my pleasure to welcome you to today's conversation, a job quality agenda for building back better an action platform for 2021 and beyond. This conversation is part of the Economic Opportunities Program's ongoing job quality and practice discussion series in which we explore practical ideas for improving the livelihoods and lives of working people all across the United States. I want to thank Prudential Financial for their support of this series of webinars. I also want to thank Prudential Financial and the Ford Foundation for their support of our Job Quality Fellowship. In the fellowship, we brought together two cohorts of fellows and intentionally brought together innovators from diverse lines of work from private business and public agencies, from labor unions and education institutions, from workforce development and economic development organizations, from community development finance institutions and more, and from diverse communities from all across the country. And we brought these fellows together to discuss the challenges of job quality and practical strategies that they're involved in and that others can be involved in for improving jobs. This group shares a belief in the central importance of, of job quality and a perspective that a variety of institutions and organizations can play a role to improve the quality of jobs. We don't need to accept jobs just as they are, they can be better and we can all play a role in making them better. Today's event draws on conversations among these fellows last fall about the role of federal policy in shaping labor markets and opportunities for jobs. The fellows developed a shared statement on how policy can help. Um, and I, I hope many in the audience had a chance to see that statement when we publicized it earlier this year, but my colleagues will share it in the chat for your review as well. I'll note that we began this work on a policy agenda when we did not know who the next president would be. But two days ago in his America United inaugural address, President Biden noted the common objects we as Americans love that define us as Americans. And he noted there were opportunity, security, liberty, dignity, respect, honor, and the truth. And I think we all do share those and they're very relevant to the work we've been doing in the Job Quality Fellowship. For a truth that we have been grappling with in the Job Quality Fellowship is that too many jobs in the United States quite simply are not good jobs. They don't offer enough to live on with dignity. They don't provide people with security and they don't provide the freedom, uh, people the freedom that they want to control their own lives and live lives they value. They live too many people living in fear, fear of being fired or let go for events well beyond their control, fear of not being able to pay their bills, fear of being unable to care for their family. Building better jobs is a critical component of addressing the country's cascading crises that President Biden discussed and of building resilience so that we can withstand future crises. So today I'm very excited that we have three of our job quality fellows with us to talk about opportunities for a new administration and a new Congress to push forward a new set of policies to make work work for everyone. Now more than ever, is a time to push for and invest in quality jobs. 
But before we start, I just wanna do a very quick review of our technology. All attendees are muted. We very much welcome your questions. Please do use the Q&A box on the bottom of the Zoom window for questions. Um, we're thrilled with the participation in today's event. And we also uh, will try to get to as many questions as, as possible, as well as the questions you sent us in advance in the registration. I also encourage you to use the chat function uh, to share comments and to share resources. We'll be sharing resources in the chat function. Uh, please share your resources on job quality with us and with your fellow attendees as, as well. We encourage you to tweet about this event. Our hashtag is job quality. Um, and if you have any technical issues during this webinar, you can chat with the Economic Opportunities Program or email us at eop.program at aspeninstitute.org. This webinar is being recorded and will be shared via email and posted on our website. This webinar also includes closed caption. Um, and I'm now going to uh, turn to our speakers. There's bio information on our website, so I won't go into great detail. Um, please do take a look at their at their bios. Um, they're they're terrific. Joining us today, we have uh, Betsy Beeman, CEO of Coastal Enterprises Inc., and she's from the 2017-2018 cohort of fellows. Jose Corona, uh, Vice President, Programs and Partnerships at uh, Stephen and Aisha Curry's Eat Play Learn Foundation. He'll correct my pronunciation. Uh, also of the first Job Quality Fellows cohort. And Karen York, CEO, Job Opportunities Task Force in Baltimore, and in the 2018-2019 Job Quality Fellows cohort. So welcome to all three of you. Uh, delighted you can join us today. Um, as mentioned, uh, there's difference in perspectives, priorities, and approaches held by the individual fellows, uh, but there was a strong consensus on the urgent need for action at the federal policy level to address job quality. And I think you'll see that reflected in the statement. Um, and I just wanted to note that the, that the agenda includes lots of different actions. Um, there were lots of actions that we couldn't get to agreement on and they weren't included. Uh, so uh, please do take a look at the, at, the, at the statement. But Karen, let me just sort of, let's just jump into our conversation and, and let's start with you. Um, so uh, in Baltimore, you know, Baltimore is a great city, love Baltimore, um, but it has long suffered from high levels of income inequality and a concentration of women and people in, of color uh, struggling with poverty or near poverty. Um, and that was before the cascading crises of 2020 and the fallout for our economy. So what do you see as a focus for action that would really make uh, progress that matters for the communities that you work with? Um, and also just if you could tell us a little bit about Job Opportunities Task Force and how your work relates to job quality, that'd be great. Sure. So thank you, Maureen, for uh, the question. And of course, for the opportunity to participate in this amazing discussion um, and to join my esteemed panelists, my fellow panelists and fellows. Um, so Job Opportunities Task Force, uh, JOTF is our acronym. Um, our focus or our mission is to help low-wage workers advance to high-wage jobs, simply put. Um, we focus on supporting programs and policies that increase access to skills, job opportunities, and higher wages. We do that using a three-pronged approach, program development, 
uh, we run a pre-apprenticeship construction training program um, that focuses very heavily on uh, skills training and electrical carpentry and plumbing, but also focuses heavy on case management, intensive case management. Uh, we administer and run the community bail fund for Baltimore City to ensure that individuals who um, are impoverished are not incarcerated due to their poverty. Our programs then inform our second strategy, which is policy, public policy advocacy, where we have success um, and a track record of advocating on behalf of a number of things that speak to job quality, particularly worker supports and benefits. So have been in the forefront of efforts to uh, most recently pass the Maryland Healthy Working Families Act, which allows for paid sick and safe leave um, for Maryland workers. Uh, we round our mission out with research and public education where we are providing um, research and statistical information and educating the public that includes policymakers, but also business leaders and the general public. Um, and so, you know, in our 25 years, in our past 25 years, you know, our focus has always been job quality. Quick shout out to JOTF. This is our 25th anniversary, so I always have to get it in when I can. But back to the original question, Maureen, and it's a really good question. Of course, a $15 minimum wage is key, right? Like, States have been pushing for this for years. Um, but we're now at a point where we've realized that that's a great first step, but so much more is needed. And what's needed really is access to quality jobs, good quality jobs, and quite honestly, a focus on barrier elimination. You know, again, as over our 25 year history, and especially now, JOTF, we are reminded that so much work remains in this space. Um, in terms of access to good quality jobs, regardless of race or place. Um, and, and, and in order to get to this idea of meaningful economic security and mobility, we have to take a holistic approach. We've seen the pandemic has devastated businesses, but especially workers, and particularly Black workers, and particularly Black women. And as such, we found a need for a greater focus on access to things like paid leave, Right, even though we may have existing laws, we're finding that they're woefully insufficient, given that we've navigated a pandemic and many workers were shut out um, from being able to benefit from our existing uh, leave laws. Um, we found a focus or a greater need to focus on higher wages. I know we are all familiar with when you know there was a need to really rely on unemployment insurance. There was this narrative around, oh, nobody wants to work because they make more in unemployment. We need to talk about the fact that folks weren't making enough in the first place. So the fact that unemployment is even a better option than regular wages, that's a completely different discussion that needs to be held. And then, of course, there was a greater need and focus for elimination of those policies that are effectively criminalizing um, and penalizing uh, many of our poor communities of color. And so the real change that is required, it, it requires real work and it requires a holistic approach. And, you know, I'm so happy that you raised Baltimore, you know, my hometown, town that I love, um, Baltimore stays in the news, right? And it usually stays in the news because of, you know, all of the horrible metrics um, that is not particularly unique to Baltimore City, but it's more so pronounced in Baltimore City. I love Baltimore, born and raised and made it a choice to stay here. We're a beautiful city, vibrant, resilient, but the majority of our workforce in this predominantly Black city is struggling, whether they are unemployed or underemployed. And many have been complicated or many of their challenges or opportunities are complicated by the fact that they have criminal records. And it's been this way for decades. And so we've always known that there were structural inequities that existed, but the pandemic has exacerbated that, making it very difficult to even ensure that folks 
um, get access to jobs, but especially good quality jobs. And so that's why there's such this urgent need for a conversation and real action um, around better jobs and more of them. It's not enough just to say, you know, we need more jobs to get folks into the workforce because we're finding, at least from my constituencies, they're not staying in the jobs. They're not able to sustain their employment because of all of the different barriers that they must navigate. But also we must, you know, we have to think about how many of these constituencies, many of these workers are struggling with things that lead to stress and stress that results from lack of finances, stress that results from uh, health disparities, stress that results from lack of affordable housing and the like, all of, the, all of which has been exacerbated um, by this pandemic. And so the only way that we're really going to reimagine uh, what this whole thing called workforce looks like for the future um, is for us to make sure that we are prioritizing with fervor this idea of good quality jobs. Thank you, Karen. That was amazing. And that sort of just lays the foundation for, I'm sure, what we'll be talking about and the ways in which good quality jobs intersect with so many issues people care about from criminal justice reform to good health. And so um, a lot there that we'll be coming back to. Betsy, let me come to you next. Um, you're a state and national leader in the community development finance world. You're you have a vantage point from a state with a, a rural economy. Um, how do you think about uh, what's going on in Maine and the process, prospects for recovery? And what, what are the key things you would emphasize from the, the job quality agenda relative to the, the kinds of work you do every day? Sure, thank you. It's, it's great to be part of this conversation today, Maureen and Jose and Karen. Um, yeah, so just for a little context, um, Maine has lost more jobs on a percentage basis than it has in any recession in the last 50 years. And where our economy is um, is very, its structure is very much oriented to not only a largely small business economy, but small businesses that require person-to-person -person contact like tourism and restaurants and you know, small-scale manufacturing. So as we've seen the pandemic and the and the epidemic, the uh, economic downturn um, progress, some of our industries have fully bounced back, but a number of those that I mentioned, plus sort of retail and services, um, workers have been displaced in significant numbers. So to give you a sense of scale, more than 100,000 non-farm jobs were lost in early in the pandemic, and that was one in six jobs in the main economy. And we're still, uh, employment is still lower, 8% uh, lower um, at the end of this past year than last February. And I think in addition, um, it's clear that the, that the pandemic and the economic downturn are having the greatest impact on low-wage workers and disproportionately on people of color and women. So to build back better, you need to build job quality and equity into the strategies pretty specifically. And as you noted, Maureen, we sort of look at these issues from a rural and a small business perspective. Um, we work with and finance micro and small businesses and sole proprietors and advocate for policies that um, really to generate more broadly shared prosperity. And many of these small businesses are led by women, immigrants and refugees and rural entrepreneurs 
business owners who are often low income themselves or uh, certainly in those sort of low to moderate income range. Um, in our work with them, we integrate a good jobs framework, which is not only including a living wage, but basic benefits and a fair and engaging workplace with opportunities for skill building. And to give just a sense of scale, um, like last year, we worked with 120 companies representing a little over 1700 workers. Over half of them paid a living wage to all frontline workers. Um, almost three quarters provided paid time off, just under half provided health insurance or benefits, and 90% provided access to skills training. Um, and we find that with our team's help, we can help these small businesses boost the quality of their jobs in ways that also um, decreases employee turnover, increases worker productivity, and ultimately sort of contributes to those jobs, those businesses being profitable and sustainable. And so for those of you on the call who work with much or think about or partner with um, or regulate much larger companies, these numbers may be very unimpressive. You may be concerned as we are that not more of them provide a living wage. But when you think about who they are, they're a baker, a woman who has started a home-based childcare program, um, an immigrant who started a painting and carpentry business. Um, they are, um, it is, they often don't have the expertise to know how to improve the quality of their jobs on their own, or even evaluate, um, you know, whether a fintech lender is, um, their interest rate is reasonable or not. And they are also, as I said, um, often low and moderate income themselves. Um, so we work with them to help them raise the quality of, of the jobs for their one or two employees or their 10 employees and have actually found that um, that those improvements can help their enterprise be more sustainable. So um, when I look at the job quality agenda that that the fellows all came up with um, and um, certainly job quality standards are, uh, are I think a number of them are listed there really important, whether it's access to health insurance or through a plan or a stipend or access to savings and retirement plans, the public procurement standards. Um, those I think are all very important steps to take. I think our perspective brings to it that it's not enough to set the standards, but we need to be helping small businesses meet the standards. Because um, in a state like Maine and many states across the country, more than half of people actually work in small businesses. Um, the last thing I would just say is that there may be some great lessons from state policies around job quality that have been bubbling up over the last five years or so. Um, you know, Maine has increased our minimum wage progressively over the last four or five years from 750 to 1215 an hour, and it's now going up linked to an inflation. And we just enacted a paid leave law where all workers and businesses, I think, uh, over 10 hour, uh, with over 10 employees will uh, earn an hour of paid leave for every 40 hours worked. And that doesn't have to be for medical. It, it's really, it's for the purpose that that employee needs. And I think all of us understand the importance today of if you think you might be sick or that someone in your family might be sick, having that paid leave would be critical. Last thing I would just say is that two things not on the agenda that I, I'd say from our perspective are important. 
is that with the dislocations in the economy, a greater number of people will need to probably change jobs or even change employment in, 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 in from one industry to another. And they're gonna need access to skills training and credentials that are valued in the workplace. So increasing investment in apprenticeships and, and job training. Um, but also I think um, with the wrenching changes in the economy, employers will need um, to access capital and business change expertise and entrepreneurial people who see new market opportunities as, as restaurants change, as we need more technology of different kinds, et cetera, will need capital and business advice to start new companies that will be able to employ people who have lost their job in the downturn. So I'll stop there. I've probably gone on too long. <laughs> no, that was that was great. Uh, that was great. I really appreciate you sort of bringing all of that in and, and particularly the sort of the perspective of small businesses, because I think there's a lot of complexity in sort of bringing a job quality agenda with small businesses, particularly in this time when small businesses are struggling. But it's sort of it's I appreciate you sort of saying it's not it's not sort of a zero sum kind of conversation that there's ways that it can be done and that strengthen the business, but, it, but there's a lot of complexity to that. And we really right. need to kind of think that through. So I really, I really appreciate that. Jose, let's, let's come to you next. So again, a very different kind of place that you hail from coming from the, coming from the Bay area, which is a, a different kind of a city and certainly not rural. Um, and uh, so just would be great for you to sort of share with us a little bit kind of um, both what you see as the, you know, you, you have been a sort of a, a key advisor to Oakland's mayor, and now you have a, a different kind of a work that you're doing at the foundation and sort of from the perspectives that you bring to this conversation, what you see as one of the, the key parts of the agenda um, and, and just, you know, in general, how you see uh, job quality kind of kind of playing out right now and where you are. Yeah, thank you, Maureen. <clears throat> and thank you to the Aspen Institute for um, having me participate today. Um, I've been following a little bit of the chat and I see a lot of old and new friends uh, from the past. And so it's good to see you all everywhere from Oakland, my hometown, to all over the country. So welcome and I'm glad you spent, you chose to spend your time with us today. Um, you're right, uh, I've, I've primarily been in a path of working with small business, economic opportunity, uh, workforce development in my past, um, and now being with uh, Stepin and Aisha Curry's foundation, Eat, Learn, Play, that's really focused on uh, the three pillars that we believe uh, create a, a healthy, wholesome child, which is access to a nutrition uh, and education, um, pursuit of a quality education, and access to safe, healthy places for young people to be healthy and active and leveling the playing field around access to sports. Um, so e even though my, my current role may seem very different than my past, uh, I am still the same Jose with the same values. And I always try to bring um, my perspective and my path in life, which has always been focused on um, bringing and creating and opening up um, opportunities for people that don't have them. And I'm doing so in this capacity. And even though we're not work at, focused on job quality or workforce, uh, we're finding our ways to uh, really integrate that um, we have to start from uh, very young ages, from young people to shape their minds and passions around how they wanna pursue their life. And especially in a region like the Bay Area, 
which is you know historically traditionally known as a tech hub that produces tech talent and produces a lot of wealth in those industries, we know that uh, not everybody benefits from that wealth. Uh, even in my hometown from Oakland, California, where you might be living in Oakland and there are some great tech companies that are, move, that are moving into Oakland, you might be living blocks away from that company, but you're thousands of miles away from that opportunity of accessing a job there. And I think it starts by how we help prepare young people uh, to access those jobs. Um, I think there's also, uh, you know, the Bay Area is, is really known for, for just the wealth creation and innovation that comes out of here. But when you look at it and you look at certain industries, um, not all industries are thriving. As Betsy was describing, if you're a small business, if you're a childcare owner, a childcare provider, you've seen through this pandemic that your work as a childcare center or as a childcare owner is hugely valuable. And even all those people that work in these tech centers, now that they're finding themselves working from home, finding themselves be their own childcare for their sons or daughters, they've seen uh, firsthand the importance of that work. And I think it's, it's, it's right now, it's we're ripe to ask that question, what, what do we value in work? What do we value in, in, what, in the industries? And uh, historically, childcare providers have not been well compensated. Uh, they have not been, and this is just one example, one industry uh, that I'm talking about, but it extends to uh, grocery workers, to restaurant workers, to so many other small business owners that, um, pro that actually more people, as Betsy probably knows and can cite the stats better than I can, more people work in small businesses than large businesses in this country. Yeah, but those are the ones that more, are more adversely affected. So for me, the way I look at it is figuring out um, what does it mean to have a quality job? It goes beyond the living wage. It goes beyond the benefits. It goes beyond the safety environment. It really goes to the issue of agency. You know, can I bring my whole self to this job? And do I feel empowered to be in this job? A dignity, which is, am I respected in my job? Do people value my work and my contributions to the work? So I know these are kind of idealistic, but you can't just be, um, you know, as Karen said, it's, it's a good start with wage. And if we're going to improve the minimum wage to $15, that's great, but not sufficient. We gotta go beyond that and really look at the issue of wealth creation. How are we helping individuals uh, build wealth? So as you look at how we see this as an opportunity to transition business, you know, small businesses have been really affected and the great thing that I've been seeing in the city of Oakland uh, that I, I also co-chaired the mayor's um, economic recovery advisory council. And one of the things that came up is that all, a lot of these small businesses have, have seen the value that they add and the value that they employees add to their own business. So that I'm seeing them thinking and talking about how they transition to ESOP models, employee stock ownership, to co-ops so that in the future, not only the business owner benefits from the business, it actually be employees too. So we have to really look at downstream of how everybody benefits from the economic, economic opportunity that's created. So whether you're in tech and, uh, or in, you're in working at a retail uh, industry, you, we have to really look, and as a society, I think we have to look at the value of the work. 
what do we value as and and is there equity in that value just because someone is a retail worker and working in the grocery store doesn't mean that their work or contributions to society and the economy are less than a tech worker that's bringing out you know innovations like a zoom for example so i think we need to be very mindful now about how do we value work and the quality of that work comes with it yeah thank you jose that's terrific and you know um and i'm going to our audience is already giving us a great and amazing question so i'm going to um follow up with you actually on on one of them because um i i appreciate sort of how you laid out what job quality is and then it goes beyond wages and benefits and to bring in some of these these values um you know and sort of uh, agency and people having um you know sort of being respected for their work and being feeling that they have control and able are able to contribute um uh so I, one of the questions from our audience was about um sort of is job quality in some sense at odds with capitalism um and you know we've talked about sort of how it can work you know to support business success as well as be good for the worker but is that you know is that right or or is there something at odds how how would you address that question uh, i'm going to you jose first but um betsy and karen you can of course chime in yeah um i think it kind of goes um with what i was saying earlier which is you know um well, first of all, the short answer is I don't think it's at odds uh, with capitalism. I think that if, if business wants to build wealth uh, for everybody, for all to benefit, uh, you know, when the lowest paid worker benefits from that economic opportunity, everybody benefits. So whether CEOs or executives want to see that or not, that's on them. Um, so if, if they want to see the value of, of how they're creating a, a better workplace and a better better opportunities for all of their employees up the up and down the the the, the chain of of um, of their organizational structure um, then it's really on them if they don't see the benefits of why a lower wage worker and improving their health or the quality of their job um, is important then you know shame on them um, I actually and, and I think that um, when you look at capitalism you know the, the extreme of it is that you know they they want to keep wages low because the executives or the shareholders, if it's a public company, they just want more accumulate more wealth for themselves and for their own, and that's why we have this these huge disparities because I, I don't think we're seeing uh, everybody benefiting, and I think it's a it's it's a huge values misalignment, and I think it's an opportunity for young uh, for not only young people, but just for workers in general to, to speak up and to, um, to, to really, you know, um, in their own way, um, um, express the value that they bring to this organization or company. Uh, but, but it really takes a big culture shift in capitalism to have everybody benefit. And that change, admittedly, is going to be really, really hard. But I'm optimistic at heart. It's going to take a long time and it may become expensive and everybody from government to philanthropy to the private sector to the nonprofit sector they all have to do their part so it's a it's a collaborative effort that gets to the idealistic world of how everybody benefits and how we're all equal and how we benefit equal and how all of our work is valued equally um but but it takes it takes a concerted effort 
and it, it'll be a feat in and of itself, but but I think it can be done. But I, but I, I can, again, if you think that uh, improving job quality and capitalism is at odds, I think you really need to look at the mirror and, and really uh, think about what values you want to live in your life. Yeah, and Jose, I really appreciate how you sort of talked about this issue of amassing wealth versus allowing more workers the opportunity to build wealth. It just reminded me of a conversation we had with um, Nick Hanauer when he basically said the problem is like in Monopoly, when one person has all the money, the game is over. So, you know, if we want to keep things going, uh, that can't be the end that we that we get to. Karen, I see you've unmuted yourself. So I, I'm guessing <laughs> you have something to say to this. Um, and so I yeah. also wanted to say that I wanted to throw another question your way so you can say something to this, but also there's been a, a question about um, about the benefits cliff and, um, and whether there are strategies to avoid the benefits cliff when you're addressing um, job quality sort of and that sort of as you push wages up, do people fall off the benefits cliff and what do we do about that? And I thought you might have perspective on that as well. So now you have two questions. Sure, sure. Um, thank you. So, um, you know, one answer um, to both questions that I'll start off with um, is, you know, when it comes to access to benefits, when it comes to good quality jobs, when it comes to whether or not, you know, someone shouldn't have to risk their paycheck or their job because they got sick, we only really have this conversation and feel like the sky is going to fall when we're talking about poor folks. Like, let's just keep it all the way real um, because that's what it comes down to. Um, and just segueing into the benefits cliff conversation, what we have, what we're navigating right now um, is, you know, having to constantly um, prove how poor someone is in order for them to get basic level rights and services. Um, and so, you know, just to piggyback off Jose's comment around this idea that when it comes to the shareholders and, you know, just kind of focusing on um, their needs, right? When it comes to the shareholders and, you know, the CEOs and all of those folks, we're not having conversations about good quality jobs because they already have them, right? They don't have to worry about um, whether or not wages will be lost if they get sick, right? They don't have to worry about um, challenges if they lose their job and being able to navigate an unemployment insurance system and all of that, right? Like that's that's not a thing um, for them uh, yet, but when it comes to the folks who need it most and who are gonna be the least likely to be able to navigate and overcome even one month's loss of wages, right? Or even before one month's loss of wages, right? Just like a week's worth of wages, right? Then it's like, we have to pay them? you mean to tell me that they can earn sick leave and they get sick and they don't have to come into work? What world is this? Socialism, that's literally what's happening here. And it's extremely frustrating um, because these are the individuals who, they're not asking for a handout, even when it comes to the benefits clip, right? When we even talk about access to benefits and being able to allow folks to stack benefits, right? We're not talking about folks being able to roll in the dough, like they're just gonna be like making it rain on everyone with like temporary cash assistance and all that. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about folks who need these benefits in order to live. And let's be clear, many of the individuals don't even want the government support, right? They wanna be able to have that step up so that they can be self-sufficient. 
And so this idea that, oh my goodness, we can't give them too many benefits. What? Like, that, how, how is that even a thing? So it's, it's actually very frustrating and borderline offensive um, to even have to engage in conversations um, that, you know, all of us are going to experience, but we experience it at, at different levels. Um, and so I refuse to even accept um, this idea that job quality goes against capitalism. I mean, first of all, just the idea around capitalism in 2021 and beyond, right? Like, I mean, that's a totally different conversation. Um, but we're not even there yet in terms of like grasping the idea of job quality. I mean, there are so many folks that even when we talk about workforce development, they don't really know what workforce development is. They'll say things like, we need more money for workforce development. Our workforce agencies should be doing more. And then you realize that your workforce agencies are actually woefully underfunded. You realize that you're woefully underfunding um, your Department of Human Services and the like outside of, you know, what is already being provided by the federal government. And so, you know, it's what is required now is a reframing and a reimagining um, of our expectations of each other, of our expectations of our systems, um, and really start to push the needle on this fact that outside of a pandemic, folks could barely get by. We've seen what a pandemic has done to folks in terms of jobs, in terms of food access. Come on now, it wasn't just folks who, you know, were on the, um, you know, the, the bottom um, of the barrel horrible, um, you know, um, uh, example, but, you know, it wasn't, we saw like many who would qualify as middle-class workers and families, right? That were stand, having to stand in these long lines for boxes of food. Childcare, that's a whole other webinar that we're gonna have to talk about. We're gonna have to just have <laughs> one solely dedicated to that one. Affordable housing, evictions, are, are really? Are we really having a conversation? We really need to have a conversation about evicting folks in a pandemic when they've lost their jobs. I mean, or you had folks that were like, well, if we're not gonna evict them, maybe we'll just raise the rent. What? then that means they're gonna be evicted. Um, and so all of these things tie into this idea of good quality jobs and how can we ensure that folks are able to support themselves and their families safely, um, but in a way that also contributes to what we like to um, give lip service to, but in no way, shape or form have we ensured that is realized to every resident in the United States of America. And that's that thing called the American dream. Yeah, thank you. That was great. I love that you're sort of talking about really job quality is fundamentally how we choose to treat each other. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And also I, I um, have to say that just matches my experience in having done many, many focus groups with people who are trying to go to various training programs and things to, to get to, to work. They really do want to earn their living and sort of the idea that they don't is, 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 is I agree. Offensive. <laughs> is not doing them justice for sure. Um, Betsy, I want to come to you with a question um, and uh, that's been upvoted many times. So um, good job audience using the Q&A upvote. Uh, what would you say to critics, especially policymakers who argue that businesses can't afford to improve job quality right now, but should only seek to preserve jobs? And of course, others can comment on this question as well. I'll let you start. Well, um, one response is, and this would be both before the pandemic as well as during the pandemic, is that we have found um, in working with small business owners that there frequently are steps that they can take that improves both the quality of the jobs that they are offering or growing, as well as the profitability and success of the company. That one doesn't need to look at these as, as separate at separate issues. Um, 
and uh, we are now that we're uh, we started a couple years ago to track data on the businesses that we work with and that we invest in. And um, interestingly, for example, with our venture fund investments, um, we've seen that if you, and it's correlative, it's not necessarily causation, but having the data is the start. It shows that those, those companies in our portfolio that either were providing higher wage jobs or improving the quality of their jobs actually um, had higher growth in revenues than those companies that did not. So we're starting to sort of look to build a uh, foundation of data and evidence that um, that um, investing in your employees and having good quality jobs can improve the prospects for your business and increase uh, increase revenues and profits. Um, that you know to do that in a way that proves causation as folks know, um, you know, it, it takes time and data and analysis, but we're trying, we're, we're being very careful in and methodical in collecting that data and, and showing that. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess the other one, and this might get us sort of down to some of the, the next part of the conversation um, is that I think, especially from a rural and small business states perspective, it's that has, you know, a state that has lower than average GDP growth, lower than average wages, that it's really important to situate the conversation about job quality in a broader sort of strategic and sort of equitable approach to economic recovery. Um, that in order to be, to have an economy that is that can provide higher wages and better quality jobs. We need to be making investments in innovation and entrepreneurship, as well as the sort of social infrastructure that needs to support businesses, whether it's investing in child access to, to affordable and good quality childcare, investing in broadband internet access, um, investing in affordable housing, et cetera, that we shouldn't be forcing all of the quote unquote costs um, on small businesses um, when there are these broader social, um, you know, when we have the uh, a sort of uh, eroding um, safety net and, and ecosystem within which these small businesses are operating. Yeah, great. Um, I, I just want to comment on the on the evidence point because I know a lot of people have worked sort of on this and we've actually worked on this looking specifically at small manufacturers and did a report showing that in fact they they do the ones that are attentive to job design do do better um, there are you know it's a it, there are complexities and proving causality is very hard but um, but but we can see how that those mechanisms work within organizations. Did you want to say something? Yeah, else on I'd point? say one other thing is um, that a lot of these things don't cost much money or don't cost any money. I mean, Jose said, you know, treating people with dignity is not expensive. Um, providing people with two weeks of notice for their schedule reduces costs and stress for low-income families and most likely costs a negligible amount or nothing. Um, having at least a, a performance review conversation at least once a year doesn't cost much money. But again, they are ways of ensuring that there's a fair and engaging workplace with, um, um, with folks able to work as, not in a way that they're considered sort of part of the machinery, but they are, are humans. Um, and uh, family members and community members, um, like all, like everyone in the in the business. 
Um, so I, that's just another point that um, there's often a bit of a false dichotomy of, or a zero sum game kind of um, framing even around, yeah, as we all know, around uh, wage levels. Oh, you know, if we raise wages, we're going to go out of business. Well, um, you know, we've seen, as I mentioned, uh, Maine has significantly increased our minimum wage over the last five years. And yes, it took place during a, a, um, a, a period of time when the economy was successively doing better uh, overall, obviously not necessarily for all, all members of the economy. Um, but um, it is um, all of the, the sky is falling, half of our businesses will have to close if we raise our minimum wage. None of that, none of that um, materialized. Yeah, great. So on the sort of minimum wage and, and regulatory things, I'm gonna go to, the, to this question, um, uh, which is what role do you see for legislative and organizing efforts to improve job quality both routes can be effective, but it seems to me that legislating labor standards can potentially reach more workers, but doesn't necessarily build their power in the workplace. Um, so that's uh, a, one of the questions we that got several votes in. And I'm wondering if, if you all could comment both on sort of legislative advocacy, as well as um, you know your view on sort of worker organizing, are those things in opposition to each other, complementary, um, and what you see as the role of those? Um, I'll start. Um, you know, I believe that they are absolutely necessary um, and complementary. There is, I, I contribute the majority of my success as both a policy advocate prior to me being CEO, um, but also just the larger success of um, the organization that I lead, JOTF, to this idea of being intentional um, with aligning and connecting um, or better yet, ensuring that our legislative advocacy is both informed and influenced and even led by um, workers um, organizing. Because the issues that we're pushing, uh, they are not issues that elicit um, a ton of sympathy. Um, and quite honestly, um, these are folks who are not contributing to campaigns. Um, you know, you very quickly hear, well, they don't vote. Well, yeah, they probably don't vote. Well, some may vote, may not vote because you know they have a conviction that's preventing them from voting, but that's a whole other thing. Um, but some also probably are not voting because you have not given them a reason to vote. And so while I'm, I'm not discouraging folks from voting, there's some serious voter apathy um, that we just have to acknowledge. And so when talking to our policymakers, you know, when it comes to really being able to frame this idea around job quality, because it's difficult, right? I can't, you know, be naive or, or try to mislead and say that it's an easy thing and we're just, you know, can just slide on through and get it done. No, it's, it's very, very difficult. It's tricky. Um, it requires you to inundate your policymakers with real stories, real experiences of how the existing policies are actually impacting folks, like in real life, real time, um, and how it's just not working. And then this is what you should be doing to ensure that we're actually doing what you're telling your constituents that you're going to do when you're not in the legislature trying to pass laws that actually don't benefit them. So it's real experience mixed with research. You gotta have numbers, you gotta have data, you gotta be able to prove trends and, and be able to show not just the impact on workers, but also the impact on businesses. You know, when we when JOTF talks about our constituency, when we talk about public education, 
It's not just about educating and advocating on behalf of workers. We have to educate and advocate on behalf of businesses. Why? Because businesses are going to hire our folks. So if I'm training folks, I want to make sure that I'm training according to what you need and, and that we're going to ensure that this is going to be a true partnership that actually works for folks. Um, and so how do you, you know, approach research with a different lens that you can attach to your legislative advocacy using those real experiences from workers? And, you know, the third prong, I know we don't want to hear it, but, you know, it's just a thing that you might want to do um, or consider. And it's just, you know, sometimes you just have to do, you know, a little bit of stalking of your legislators legally, a bunch of shaming of them. And it's going to be, it's going to take a while. It's going to take all of these things because we're not going to really see any movement on real job quality without investing um, and educating in our small businesses and businesses for them to even adopt um, and embrace this idea. Uh, but also laws have to change, right? Like we know that um, things really happen in our courthouses and our state houses. Um, and so, you know, the fact that we in Maryland have to go all the way to Annapolis um, to, you know, beg our legislators, can we please have sick leave so we don't lose our job if we get sick? Um, in Baltimore City, the majority of our issues are handled at the state level. So we have individuals outside of Baltimore City that get to make decisions regarding what happens in Baltimore City, right? And, and the residents of Baltimore City many times tend to be, um, you know, struggling the most in terms of uh, residents in the city or, or in the state. Um, and so I, I just, I can't imagine, I can't see how you can advance successful legislative advocacy uh, without being creative, innovative, and intentional with your organizing efforts. Great, thanks, Karen. Karen. And I see Jose, you have unmuted yourself, so I'll just go to you. Uh, from now on, I'm going to say ditto to what Karen said. <laughs> uh, amazing. No, no. So everything that she said, and the other thing that I would add to that would be that um, we can't divorce our organizing and legislative push just on the issue of jobs. You have to marry it with advocacy around issues of housing and healthcare, things like that. Because I don't know if you've, if, if you've all heard of the book that's out uh, called The Color of Law, of how housing decisions were actually made intentionally to segregate communities. And a big part of that was to segregate people from accessing good jobs. So when, when at the federal level, state level, or even local level, your policymakers are making city planning decisions that affect how you affect uh, access to affordable housing or how you it affects you, you know, moving further away and spending that money in transportation for a crappy job in the city. It, it just, it, it's, it's all connected. So when we're thinking about our legislative policies and approaches, it just can't be around the job and the wages. And what we think right now is just job quality, housing, healthcare, and other issue areas need to be taken into consideration. And I think it, it starts with holding your local policymakers accountable on how they make city planning, city building, land use planning decisions of where, where they're going to put their housing, where they're going to put the work centers. And I think it, it also brings it to, to how we bring you know, worker hubs to rural areas. I am a, a son of farmers. I grew up in a farming community called Watsonville, California, and farmers are uh, another issue that I think we could have another uh, webinar around job quality for farmers. 
and work for farmers. So I think that's another, but I, my point there is that uh, we have to also think about how we connect rural communities to these job centers by bringing those work hubs to them or making it easier for them to access. Whether again, it's transportation decisions, infrastructure improvements and investments. So we, my point is we have to invest in different uh, efforts around different policies as well. Yeah, great. I love that. And I'm gonna go to this next question because it's also on a topic that I think is so important. It brings up these issues of narratives, right? And sort of the narratives that we have about different things and why they are and that have us accept them rather than question those narratives and sort of interrogate the narratives and what does that mean for, um, if we shift those narratives, how does that create space for us to, to shift our practices um, and to shift our expectations for, to, for better? But I, um, so anyway, so I love these narrative questions. Um, and this one is specifically, are there strategies that combine advocacy and narrative change efforts to lift up black and brown workers as valuable assets to businesses? Um, and, uh, I'll ask all of you to weigh in on this. And Betsy, I think I'd ask you to also think about what are the narratives we have about rural areas and rural opportunities in this as well. But um, Karen, you want to start? Sure. Um, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge uh, and recognize that before we can even talk about changing the narrative for Black and Brown workers uh, within the workforce space, we have to acknowledge that there is a very strong um, negative narrative of uh, these populations that exists um, just in general. Um, and so being able to even have the conversation about providing quality jobs um, to workers who identify as black and brown, um, before I even get to that, I have to navigate through um, you know, these narratives of, well, do they wanna work? Um, and, you know, if, if there's any interaction with the criminal justice system, you know, of course, there is just a ton of, um, you know, images and narratives that come with that, not realizing that many of our individuals are being criminalized and penalized because they're poor, whether it's the cash bail system, child support, unaffordable auto insurance. Um, we have um, individuals who, you know, are um, finding uh, that even um, their interactions um, with the criminal justice system as a result um, of their race and ethnicity uh, is then leading to complications in their immigration proceedings, which then of course exacerbates any type of workforce, you know, opportunities that you're trying to navigate. And so I say all this to say that I just wanna make sure that we're really clear about the different narratives that we have to like peel away about this particular population before we can even talk about something like job quality. Um, and so because of that, and because we don't have much time and you know the attention span of many of our policymakers are like, you know, um, it, you kind of have to do it all at once. And so for myself, um, who's a black woman, born and raised in Baltimore, um, many of the challenges that I advocate on behalf of, family, friends, my own hood, see it every day. So I, I can't talk about, or I can't try to change the narrative around why this particular population um, needs special access to job quality without um, dismantling or um, just simply trying to undo uh, the very offensive, disgusting narrative um, that is framed for this population in and of itself. So I gotta combine it, I gotta do it all at once. I gotta make sure that um, 
you know, I'm saying things like, no one's asking for a handout. We're not telling you to put black and brown workers at the front of the line. We're just saying, can they get in line? Can they, I mean, at least be able to be competitive with other folks? I mean, how do we, you, just, just being able to get folks to that point um, of thinking that yes, there are differences due to yes, race and ethnicity um, and sexual orientation and all of these different things. But we are all the same. We wanna work, we wanna be able to support our families. We wanna be able to play recreationally and all of these things. We're not so different. And no, if you pay us good wages, no, we're not going to all of a sudden just, you know, go out and, and spend all of our money on, you know, whatever you think we shouldn't be spending our money on, but we can't question you on what you're spending your money on. You know, when it comes to benefits and trying to, you know, determine what, what someone should be spending their food stamps on or their temporary cash assistance on, thinking about just, you know, requiring drug testing and all of these different barriers and work requirements to just be able to get the bare level of service. Um, all of this is specific to this narrative that we have of black and brown communities that have existed for decades and this actually hundreds of years, right? Um, and so just being able to unravel that, like you, you gotta kind of do it all together in order to even get to the idea of job quality, unfortunately. Betsy, did you wanna comment from uh, on the road? Yeah, um, I mean, as a CDFI, we, I mean, we see our advocacy work at really being driven, I think, by our mission and um, and by what we're learning from our practice. So what we're learning from the entrepreneurs we work with and the folks who work in, in the small businesses we work with. Um, and it enables us to have a, I'd say, a powerful and respected voice at the state level. Um, uh, can I stop oh, you for just one yeah. second? Because I see in the chat the question of what is a CDFI? So. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> A community development financial institution. It's a um, maybe slightly unwieldy acronym. I always say you can't build a movement around an acronym. So, but it, we're really um, we are mission-driven community development investors, um, and we pro, we primarily serve those uh, small businesses and community organizations that are underserved by the sort of traditional financing and and um, support ecosystem. Um, but because in you know in a, in a small business state, the fact that we um, have 400 uh, small business loans in our loan portfolio, and the fact that we coach and, and advise, you know, over around 2,000 entrepreneurs a year, sort of directly, um, that's big in a small state. And so when we're often invited into policy um, networks and conversations. Um, to bring that expertise, and we bring with it our our um, our determination around our mission. So, um, just as two examples, I was um, appointed to the governor's economic recovery committee in May, um, and brought the voice of um, of our mission and from working with many refugee and uh, and and um, refugee and immigrant entrepreneurs many um, women entrepreneurs um, and obviously rural entrepreneurs to those conversations. Um, and my colleague Keith Bisson is serving on the permanent commission of the status of racial and indigenous populations in Maine, which is looking at all of, uh, not all, but a, a, a 
investigated or, or interrogated um, a, a long list of um, bills that were in the most recent uh, legislature that sort of got halted by the pandemic to identify um, were they equity building uh, bills or were there aspects of, of those bills that needed to be changed or um, because they were either sustaining an inequitable system or, or sustaining barriers that prevent people from moving forward. So um, we, we have a, we're able to sort of amplify or play a role in those conversations, um, bringing our mission and bringing the lessons that we're learning from, you know, frankly, four decades of work in these communities. Um, I could say more, but. Great. Um, I, I see that we're, um, uh, let's see. So, okay. So I'm gonna ask one more question about, uh, about employers, which is um, how do you balance meeting employers where they are with their job quality efforts with being able to say no to employers, right? So, um, and I think what this question is getting at a little bit is something that we have not really brought up that much in terms of the work that you all, all do, which is some of the power dynamics, right? So a lot of times um, employers are sort of the more powerful members of a community. So when you're asking for, you know, when you're trying to work with employers um, uh, to improve job quality, sort of what's your, what's your way of sort of um, setting some standards, I guess would really be kind of, kind of the question. One, um, I mean, we leverage our, we use the fact that we are an investor to leverage those relationships. Um, when we, we have, I think I mentioned we have, um, stood up about uh, four venture capital funds over the last 20 plus years. And when we make an investment in a, in a business, we, uh, they are typically signing a, what we call an employment and training agreement or a social agreement where they are committing to make best efforts to, um, to ensure that a certain proportion of the new jobs that our capital is enabling them to create will be filled by people with low and moderate incomes. Um, and so when they first meet us, they, we, um, whether through with venture capital or small business lending, um, we are, they, they know that we care about job quality and, and they know that we care about, um, about building wealth and for folks to advance in their careers. And we, um, so it's not a surprise. Um, and having an agreement like that, which we don't have with every company, it needs to be a company that, you know, that has a significant relationship with us. But um, it's, uh, it's, if they're not living up to that goal, um, it's an opportunity to sit down and have a conversation and see how can we help you be successful at achieving this milestone. Um, so I'd say that's leveraging an investor relationship or even frankly, an advisory relationship where we're bringing information and expertise um, that is that they're seeing can have value for their small business uh, certainly is a, um, is a, a way of, of getting cooperation um, uh, from, from small businesses. Obviously very different than working with large corporations. Jose? Yeah, I would say, uh, you know, the other thing that government is also an employer. 
And I think there's uh, one of the things that government has is the, the choice of purchasing. And I know this is something that we were talking to Mark Popovich when, when I was at the mayor's office around how we integrate job quality um, assessments in our purchasing decisions when we're purchasing from different suppliers, whether it's printing or procuring different kinds of services, how we build in uh, job quality standards into those decisions uh, and asking questions uh, in the RFP process around how do they treat employees, what's the pay structure, what's the organizational structure, things like that, that go into uh, supporting the job quality, but also build into that uh, a big emphasis on prioritizing businesses and suppliers owned by uh, women and people of color. So we were very intentional and um, we, we were right on the cusp of doing it when I left the mayor's office. And I think we, we worked with Health and Human Services on a contract that we bid it out using that. So Mark, you, you, if you're listening, I know, you'd be happy to know that that was implemented. Uh, so the more to come to that. So governments have the purchase of the purse or the power of the purse on making purchasing decisions on that. I think the other thing around employers, and, and I'll cite uh, another local example, Kaiser Permanente, uh, a healthcare company here in the Bay Area that has done a really good job of really looking at uh, and identifying value versus cost. Most employers bid out their procurement based on the, the cheapest contract or the cheapest service that they can get. And I think what Kaiser has done well in how they're looking at their supply chain is looking at the value again, prioritizing uh, small businesses and carving out certain contracts that are targeted to minority-owned businesses and women-owned businesses. And within that, building in quality standards and job quality standards. I think there's examples out there and I would cite Kaiser Permanente as one of them that has done that really well. Um, that, those are only some examples, but I think it's, it's, it's really kind of the, again, is how do we use examples of big corporations like that. And instead of us organizers and people that believe in this uh, advocating to other businesses is how do we get Greg Adams, the CEO of Kaiser Permanente advocating for how they're doing things to other CEOs. So it becomes a peer to peer almost pressure uh, because we know it takes that. It takes the organizing, it takes the peer to peer support and it takes legislative action uh, on, so how do we triage that effectively and in a coordinated way uh, to actually get that work done? Great, thank you, Jose. I love that you brought up so many of the different sort of levers to create change in that. And, and also the way that institutions, it's not just private companies that are employers or purchasers, right? But we all have employees and we can think about their job quality and we all interact, have market-based interactions and we can think about how we do them with a job quality lens. So um, I see we're coming to the end of our time and I wanted to just ask you all sort of basically sort of a, a future looking question a little bit, you know, which is we started with a conversation about we have a new administration, we're hoping that they will center job quality in their, in their policy agenda uh, in a variety of ways. Um, and I just wanted to ask you each to sort of speak to what's your what's your sort of big hope for a change at the federal level in terms of what you think would have the most impact in, in um, improving job quality. And then if you have sort of anything, we have a, a terrific audience here. Um, 
if you have any sort of piece of advice you'd want to want to share with them about what they can do to advance job quality in their communities. So I will let you, um, Karen, you're un Karen, you're unmuted. Do you want to go first? Oh, sure. I didn't realize I was on mute, but I'm ready. Okay. Um, so hope. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I have so many hopes um, for the future, right? We have a new administration nationally, um, but also in Baltimore, we have a newer, uh, a new mayor. Um, he's young mayor um, and he's one that gets it. Um, but, you know, many times uh, it, it doesn't matter uh, who the new face is. Um, they're going up against systems um, and these systems are uh, based on profits. Um, and many times those profits uh, require certain constituencies to go without or certain constitu constituencies to be exploited, um, you know, to the benefit of others. Um, and so, you know, another administration looking ahead, what's the future gonna look like? Um, whether it's just economic opportunity in general or where we're talking about something more specific like job quality. Um, there are a number of, uh, you know, things to want to hope for and hope to see in our new administration. But um, for me, uh, but both personally and professionally, it is past time, so overdue, for any approach to economic development, community development, uh, workforce development, economic justice. Um, it must be led with, um, and it must, from the very core, uh, reflect and use a racial equity lens. Our essential workers, uh, we found overwhelmingly people of color, underpaid, low wages, um, this, this isn't new information. Um, so it's, it's past time for us to keep saying racial equity trainings um, and start applying a racial equity lens to our policy making. Um, that should also extend to our procurement laws when it comes for our businesses. Um, many times when you have companies, especially in construction, um, and they want to be able to compete uh, for these larger projects. And, and many times, especially, you know, employers of color are gonna be more likely to hire from the community. They're gonna be more likely to hire um, people of color. The difficulties that they face in just navigating procurement law and the licensing challenges and all of the different barriers that quite honestly, if you're a larger, more established, white-led, white-owned um, entity, you can navigate those a lot easier. You can kind of eat those costs. Whereas for, you know, businesses and entities, um, that are owned by black and brown individuals, um, they are less likely to be able to forego, um, you know, loss of credit um, or, you know, lack of access to many of these opportunities. So we, we can't do any, there's no hope and change and feeling good if we are not giving real attention and intention to applying a racial equity lens to everything we do when it comes to economics. Great, thank you. Betsy. Uh, sure. Um, well, I guess, I mean, my first hope, and it's almost, uh, I mean, it's obvious, is that we get this pandemic behind us because we cannot fully um, recover our economic vibrancy if people are afraid for their health, if, if people have to be pulling their kids in and out of schools, um, 
if, um, you know, frontline workers are afraid for their health uh, every day when they're going to work. So um, I think that is the first one. And it's great to have um, an administration that is looking at being strategic and leveraging everything the federal government can do to make sure that that happens quickly. Um, I guess that secondly, I would hope that we could build um, job quality into the many initiatives that we're likely to see um, in, um, in these infrastructure investments that perhaps we will see in the transition to a green economy. Um, and that it should not only be job quality, but the investment in workers to enable them to be um, securing a decent livelihood and advancing in their, in their careers. Um, so building that in. Um, and I guess, um, and um, if I didn't say that explicitly, um, building that, that doing that as Karen talked about by applying a racial equity lens will be very important to do it in a way that is successful. Um, so we will need to do that. Finally, especially for, I'd say the rural regions um, of, of our country, I think we can only be successful if that is also done within um, investing in innovation and entrepreneurship and those um, broader sort of social infrastructure like childcare and broadband uh, internet access. That, that without making those kinds of investments, we won't see higher wages, we won't see the kind of multiplier effect that you get from those types of investments. And they will be by definition incomplete because if folks don't have access to childcare, they will not be able to fully participate. Um, and so we'll be, we won't have the benefit of sort of tapping all of the talent in this country and of folks who are coming in later years to this country in that, in that effort. Okay. Well, thanks again for having me. I'll, I'll be quick because I know we're running out of time. Um, I would say three things. Uh, one, um, let's not forget about our youth. Um, and maybe it's because I'm more close to them right now in the work that we do. Um, I think one of the things that we should be working to, towards is helping, helping them ignite their passion and their creativity and turning that into opportunity, whether it's economic or social or both, or how do you marry that? But I think our, our, our youth, I mean, we often say it, um, they're our future, they really are, and I really believe in them. So we shouldn't leave them out of the conversation. They're a big part of how we're gonna shape our future. And, and um, second to that is uh, in igniting that creativity and passion, uh, let's, let's really be um, objective about it. Whether they wanna be an artist or a writer or a plumber, or a retail worker or a tech worker, uh, we have to support them that and we have to value that passion and that work equally. So just because they wanna be an artist doesn't mean they're not the future of work. So we have to be really careful about how we define the future of work. Often it's really couched as code for tech or artificial intelligence or things like that. But the future of work is everything, everything around us. So we, we should be expansive so when you know, my advice to the, you know, whether there's government workers in the Biden administration or any administration is when they talk and convene task forces around the future of work, that it's not all tech, because that's where we just become really narrow in our thinking. It has to be really expansive and it has to be diverse at all levels. 
I think that the final thing that I would say for all of us to think about is that as we're tackling whatever problem we're trying to solve individually or collectively, be clear about what problem it is we're trying to solve. And at the same time, let's not try to boil the ocean because it becomes impossible. Let's pick five ponds that we wanna warm up and shine light on and do very specific things that will then, if we find five ponds, then turns into 10 ponds, that's into 500 ponds, it does start becoming the ocean. So we have to be patient, we have to be thoughtful, but we have to be very intentional and we have to approach all this with a sense of urgency. Thank you, that's terrific. And that's perfect for um, uh, a transition to how I wanted to close, which was, was with the words of an amazing young person who I think blew us all away on, on Wednesday, Amanda Gorman, who is an artist. Um, and just the final words of her, of her poem, for there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it, if only we're brave enough to be it. I share that with my thanks to my brave job quality fellows who show up to work every day with the courage of their convictions, to my fabulous economic opportunities program colleagues who helped me put this together and a particular shout out to Mark Popovich, who uh, is my partner in the all the job quality fellow work. Um, and with gratitude and thanks to everybody in our audience for your tremendous participation in today's conversation and for joining us today. Thank you all for participating in this conversation and for being part of trying to build quality jobs. I hope you join us again next time. Thank you. Thank you.